Namaste and welcome to today's 3.30 show, which is a little bit different. It's not a solo because I've got uh, Professor Salvatore Babones right from Sydney and it's uh, 9 p.m. in Sydney right now. Welcome, Salvatore. How are you doing? Doing well. It's great to be here. And uh, you become quite a celebrity right now in <laughs> India and uh, you were... Uh, some given epithets and some self-anointed epithets like you like like to call yourself the khan market gangster i believe well and, the uh, first place i went when i visited delhi was the khan market to go buy books if that doesn't make me a khan market gangster i don't know what that makes me oh well even i did that you know that uh, i think just after 2019 elections i went to khan market and i said okay occupy khan market <laughs> <laughs> and I and I took a photograph and I tweeted about it, and we had a, a nice. I'm just there. following in your footsteps, Sanjay. That's all. Following in your footsteps. <laughs> so you go and occupy Khan Market. That's a good thing to do. I think occupy Khan Market should be the uh, next go-to campaign. <laughs> we'll get a hashtag going. Call Elon. That's right. Okay, He'll help out. Khan we'll do that today. Uh, uh, let me come back to the uh, topics or the quotes for which uh, you are being either hailed or you are being pilloried, uh, depending upon the person or the ideology that the person belongs to. Uh, but uh, I just want to go a little deeper in the sense that, okay, you attributed some of the poor ratings that we have. You said that, okay, there is an inherent anti-India bias among the rating agencies and uh, you also uh, talked about the sampling that they do and the sampling happens among the intellectuals who according to you happen to be anti-India. Have I got it right so far? Uh, almost right except I've been I've been saying there is no anti-India bias among the rating agencies. I want to be very clear about that. The anti-India bias is among the people answering their surveys, not among the agencies themselves. Uh, there may be some bias in the agency that I can't know for sure, but uh, the democracy rankings and I emphasize this, the democracy rankings accurately reflect as far as I can tell the views of the people who are being surveyed for these rankings, who are primarily themselves India's own intellectual class. No, but uh, isn't this uh, a fact that the sampling bias that occurs within the agency may be a result of their own bias? For instance, I pointed out to you the, I think I sent you a, an article which analyzes the uh, composition of this uh, what is called the i think the swedish agency which uh, does the democracy ratings well so first of all we don't know the actual composition of the panel for the varieties of democracy institute rankings which are the ones that rate india the worst we do know that their panels are composed roughly 85 percent of academics uh, and that most of their panelists two-thirds or more, are within the country being studied. I suspect for India, it's larger than two-thirds within the country because many of the countries being studied, it would be difficult to find a sufficient panel of academics. But in India, there's such a large number of academic institutions. I would suspect that that number for India is rather above two-thirds. So most of the people being surveyed for India would be leading academics at Indian universities, buttressed by some Indian think tankers, uh, some people at, at human rights organizations, again, mostly in India, either Indian or non-Indian, but working in India. Um, I see no reason to doubt that that's the composition of the panel. I mean, there's no, I don't have the evidence. I, I don't have a list of panelists and they're not providing that. But my personal experience from having heard uh, Indian academics, again, senior Indian academics in the social sciences. I'm not talking about engineers or business professors. I'm talking about people who study democracy in India. Um, when I've heard them speak outside India at conferences, and when I've read their writing uh, in public forums, they're the ones who are telling me and my students who attend these events that India has become a fascist dictatorship. So when I hear that repeated back in the VDEM rankings, I'm not at all surprised. 
Okay. Uh, let me put it to you this way. Yeah. That uh, the Indian academia, by and large, is a product of what we now call coloniality. Sure. And this syndrome of this coloniality is actually flowing from the West to the developing or the underdeveloped countries. In fact, it was very nicely summarized in uh, a United Nations paper in 1951, uh, which said, uh, uh, I think something like uh, the, uh, I think it, uh, called, it was called uh, necessary things to do for the underdeveloped economy, something like that. I don't remember the exact title. It was a 1951 paper, which actually formed the economic development paradigm for uh, most of the underdeveloped and uh, developing countries for the next 50 years, more than 50 years, till, I think, the 2008 crisis. And uh, even at that time, it said, and it actually put into place the Eurocentric one modernity, one rationality paradigm and said that, okay, if the countries have to develop, then they have to pay a price. And the price that it wanted to extract, basically, it's, uh, the underpinning is that uh, they have to pay a price in terms of their uh, local morality and the local values, and they have to conform to the West. This is the coloniality paradigm that has pervaded the world for the last uh, better part of the last 70 years. Uh, don't you think so? Well, sure. I, I mean, look, if you want to go all the way back to original causes and you want to say the problem is that when people rank Indian democracy, they don't go to temples and ashrams and mosques and madrasas, but instead they go to Western-style universities in India, well, fair enough. But, uh, I mean, let's live in the 21st century. In the 21st century, like it or not, fair or not, product of history though it may be, the fact is it would be, I think, rather unrealistic to expect an agency ranking uh, democracies around the world instead of going to the credentialed experts in that society, that is, the university professors of political science, the university professors of sociology, the heads of the political science and sociology national associations in those countries, the heads of major think tanks. If instead you want to go you know, to the organic institutions, the non-colonial institutions, all right, you'd probably get a very different answer. But I, I don't think anyone realistically expects that. I, I mean, when we rank, let's take it out of the Indian context, when we rank Iranian democracy, no one is going to ask the Ayatollahs what the quality of Iranian democracy is. They're going to go to the University of Tehran and ask about the quality of Iranian democracy. They're going to go to the you know, human rights organizations that are studying Iran to ask about the quality of Iran Iranian democracy. Now, now, if you want to say that's ultimately a legacy of colonialism and of Western domination, you know, structures of Western domination, you're not wrong, but I, I, I think, forgive me, I, I think you're living in a different century where, you know, look, the reality is we live in a modern world, a postmodern world where these processes have occurred and there's no getting away from the fact that, you know, the chief credentialing institutions in India, and I emphasize not just for democracy rankings. I, I mean, if you want an engineer, are you going to go to an IIT graduate? Or are you going to go to an ashram and someone who studies traditional concepts of, you know, from traditional Vedic concepts of building? Well, you're going to go to an IIT, right? And, and that's just an obvious fact of life in 21st century India. Colonialized it may be, you know, Western imperialist it may be, but reality it is. Well, in 2013, the United Nations itself, in its millennium goal, it changed that paradigm. It says that uh, there is no development possible without incorporating the local culture. Uh, I give it, put it to you differently. Uh, let's try and uh, let's try and compare the economic surveys, as far as India is concerned, and uh, the social surveys, the which have. Uh, 
higher weightage for social indices and uh, look at the purely economic indices and uh, if you look at them i put it to you that uh, these surveys like you know democracy survey the mm. freedom index survey uh, i put them in the i put them in the category of social and political indices sure and uh, when you apply scientific parameters to them and what is science of the basic science if you take the uh Karl Popper theory of uh, how you measure uh, uh, what is the scientific method the scientific method they, they call it a verifiability repeatability universality yeah. and falsifiability of course which Karl Popper says is the most important sure you don't find them in these uh, social and political ratings whereas uh, economic ratings where it is possible to quantify in a more scientific way in in a more exact manner where the quantities are exactly measurable then you get a completely different sense so do you think that uh, these indices are fundamentally unscientific the political well, San one sanjay i think you're on very thin ice here since of course your validation for the economic surveys is that ultimately you have a you know hard data component you can you can judge the survey against the hard data of actual economic performance but how do we measure economic performance we don't measure it in non-western you know organic socially informed ways we measure it using gdp which is a you know, which is a western construct that has a you know set of statistical categories that was set up in the 1920s in the united states and after world war ii through American power was promulgated out to the rest of the world as the standard way of measuring productivity in the world. And so, you know, your benchmark, you know, yes, your economic surveys may have some external benchmark, but that external benchmark is a thoroughly colonial construct. So, you know, are you in any better shape here? Now, yes, the truth is we don't, we don't have any external validation for the social surveys, but that doesn't mean they're not real. There, there are lots of things for which we have no external validation that are still science. I mean, we have no external validation of anything in our universe because we can only study our universe, you know, astronomically from inside it. Okay. So, but we still can do science inside our universe. And in the same way, these surveys, I have no reason to believe are not accurately reflecting the actual opinions of highly credentialed social scientists in India. Now, if I'm wrong, I, I mean, you're Indian, you are much more in this milieu than I am. You tell me, do you find in your experience that the highly credentialed social scientists who study Indian democracy, that is columnists at major newspapers who write about the quality of democracy, academics at major institutions in the social sciences, I don't mean a scientist who writes a book about the social sciences. I mean, the actual professor of politics at Ashoka University or at JNU, are those professors of politics out there in India saying these rankings are all wrong? Or are they highly critical of Indian democracy? The professors of human rights at Indian University, so people who study human rights law for a living, who are credentialed, who are paid by the Indian state to be professors of human rights law, are they telling you no, no, no. Human rights in India are fantastic. These surveys are all wrong. Now, if you tell me as someone who's in this milieu that I as an outsider have just completely misjudged the milieu, in fact, the leading professors of human rights and the leading professors of politics and the head of the Indian Sociological Association and the Indian Political Science Association are all in the news in India telling India today and, and telling News 18 that these democracy rankings are wrong, well, I'll meekly, you know, just kind of fizzle on, you know, go away. <laughs> but <laughs> well, don't need to go but you're away. not telling me that. I'm, you know, I'm, nobody I'm, is, nobody I'm, is I'm, telling I'm, me that. And, and, and if that's not you, the case. Yeah, what, what I'm telling you so, is that so, yeah. uh, actually it only buttresses your own argument because uh, these Ashoka University people, uh, at least uh, people like me, we don't hold them in very high esteem because they are still working. You don't hold the them in very high esteem. Uh, uh, they are still working in the Marxist binaries. Uh, look, they are not. I, uh, they are not conforming to the so, millennial goals. They are saying that uh, Indian culture, the Indian basic values. What are the yeah, Indian yeah. values? Let's let's talk about the Indian values. 
what are the indian values indian values they don't work in binaries that's it the that logic is, that the ancient indians have you, followed from time immemorial is multi valued logic not a binary you logic you may be right nonetheless ashoka is the highly ranked or if not the highly ranked one of the three highest ranked liberal arts colleges in india on every ranking of which i'm aware now if you're doing that's unfortunate but true yes <laughs> okay it, it, so so and, so you and, may and, feel it's unfortunate. We, are, we are working we are working to reverse that we don't want to <laughs> but you, you may feel like it's un- that word in ashoka to yeah, hold yeah, that kind you, of rank you may feel it's unfortunate you may feel it's wrong but the question on the table is are these rankings reliable are they scientifically accurately reflecting the true opinions of the people they are designed to reflect they are not designed to reflect the opinions of youtubers no matter how many millions of followers they may have they're not designed to reflect the opinions of outsider intellectuals no matter how high quality and high caliber their books may be they are designed to reflect the opinions of the credentialed experts on democracy in that country and who study that country now every credentialed expert who studies indian democracy that i'm aware of outside india that is all of the western experts outside india seem to be of the same mind that indian democracy has serious problems everyone except me as far as i can tell this is why i'm on the program right because as i'm the i seem to be the only western expert who's come to a different conclusion and among indian experts we've just agreed that among those who are credentialed you may believe that they are wrongly credentialed but we agree that they are credentialed um so the rankings okay is the entire stru- intellectual structure that places universities at the height of our uh, intellectual universe is that whole structure a western imposition yeah worlds we have a lot of good world society theory to which i've contributed that says that, yes this is a western and and primarily post world war 2 an american imposition um well, majority of indians believe so that's why modi is okay here. fine look uh, uh, and if you say well tear down the whole structure i'll say well all right if that's what your country wants to do but i don't hear tear down the whole structure i hear tear down only the humanities and social sciences because we like the medical structure we like the engineering structure we like the science structure you know we like the mathematics structure we like all of these structures except the humanities and social sciences and well i'm sorry you know the humanities and social sciences come with the package a very fundamental question what is science and social science yeah look there's a lot of debate about that i mean social sciences i think are you know they straddle the border between the humanities and the sciences that's why they have the qualifier social you know they're not as scientific as these sciences that said that they're not as bad as you may think uh, I, i mean there are other observational sciences that have a lot of the same problems for instance geology you know in geology you can use quote unquote scientific methods but ultimately geologists must interpret what they see without the ability to run experiments on them uh paleontology you know similar situation now they're not as bad as social sciences as you get towards the as you get further and further towards the humanities you end up in what more of what's called an ideographic approach to knowledge meaning that each person has a uh each person in each topic has its own distinctive approach without necessarily converging on a single methodology as the sciences would um so i'm not defending the social sciences i'm simply trying to make it very clear that if you want to attack these rankings on the basis that they're unscientific i think you're barking up the wrong tree now if you want to say that the entire basis of doing rankings is is anti-indian un un-indian well fair enough but but once you accept the 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 superstructure you know once you accept the idea that what we are doing is using survey methods and credentialed expertise in order to ascertain an expert opinion um if you accept that basic structure the rankings are reflecting the opinion now again you can you can question the whole foundation that's fine and i won't argue with you uh but if you accept the foundation you're stuck with the rankings now as you know i've argued that the rankings are wrong they're they're dead wrong because i think the people the experts who are making the judgments are themselves biased and they're allowing their biases to creep into their social science as they're they're allowing their scientific quote unquote uh evaluations to be driven by their personal politics and that's a problem all across the social sciences 
it's not so much a problem in geology because very few people have political feelings about geology. But epidemiology, I mean, we've all just been through the coronavirus crisis and anyone who thinks that epidemiology is not politicized, you've lived through a different crisis than I have. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's okay, not just I'll, us. I'll nuance this uh, uh, foundation being wrong versus the uh, people who are being sampled wrong. And uh, we'll take it to a, a different dimensions. And uh, that is where your own contention comes in, where you say that people who say that Indian democracy is fascist or Indian democracy is wrong are themselves wrong. Uh, I also see, I, I, I slightly nuance it in the sense that you feel only the people who are being sampled are basically anti-India and those biases creep in. Uh, the people who are doing the sampling are scientific. Uh, quote unquote. Uh, mostly. I, I mean, I think there may be modest biases, but, but they're very modest. Yeah. My, my contention is that uh, the very fundamental Eurocentric model that said that people have to sacrifice in 1950 when I'm talking about the UN paper. Yeah. And they haven't taken into consideration the changes that have come since then. And uh, the UN itself has gone back on it, where it says that, okay, you have to conform to that same, that one modernity, one rationality, one universality, Western model. And uh, if you do not conform to it, then you don't develop. And uh, it is along those lines that uh, uh, most of the sampling or the models or the constructs have been made. Yeah. But in 2013, the UN itself goes back on it and says that uh, you have to honor the local culture. Without local culture, there will be no development. And what is local culture? For instance, in India, we talk about India. What is the local culture? Have, has that been factored into their considerations? Look, first, you, you keep bringing up UN resolutions. I don't see what UN resolutions have to do with the reality of development. I mean, the UN can resolve. The UN could resolve tomorrow that the Earth is flat. It won't make the Earth flat. Okay. More importantly, I can demonstrate that you're wrong about the anti-India biases of the ranking structures themselves, because up until 2013, the rankings were relatively favorable to India. That is, up in 20, up until 2013, one of them had India tied with Belgium. India was in the general range of Western European countries when it came to evaluations of India's democracy. Now, the drop since 2014 has been catastrophic. I mean, it's, it's, it's been enormous on all three of the major rankings. That drop cannot be attributed to a longstanding, universal, unchanging anti-India bias among the rankings agencies. It can be explained very easily and neatly by an anti-Modi bias among the people doing the evaluations. Now, Occam's razor, I can't prove to you that the drop in rankings was due to an anti-Modi bias among leading Indian intellectuals, but you know, look, I know that the India was ranked highly up till 2014. I know the rankings have dropped precipitously since 2014. I know that Indian intellectuals, leading Indian intellectuals are the primary source of information for the rankings. I know that leading into Indian intellectuals are largely as a class, again, I'm talking about credentialed intellectuals at major institutions, human rights campaigners, professors of politics. I know they're thoroughly anti-Modi as a whole. Okay. You know, it doesn't take a genius <laughs> to connect all of these dots together and weave a narrative. Um, could, can I prove my narrative? No, no, I, I, I would need a lot more information. Is there, an, is there a mountain of circumstantial evidence in favor of the narrative? Yeah, uh, let, let's just, you know, yes. Uh, okay, let's talk about the weights that are given to these narratives. For instance, the, you talk about the hunger index. You talked about uh, why the hunger index tanked, and that was because the lack of correction between 2013 and 2000. Right, there was a technical error in the hunger index. It's, yeah. it's a technical that still hasn't error. been corrected. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that. Uh, but what about uh, when you talk about hunger index? You yourself mentioned that India's GDP is uh, in, increased by 50%. Yeah. And uh, India has run during the COVID times the largest anti hunger program of 
any country. In fact, not just the largest, I think uh, larger by about uh, a factor of 10 by of any country. Yeah. And uh, they do not get factored into because the weights that are given to the so-called hunger index, there is no access to food weight at all in that hunger index. Yeah, but look, that, that's still not the problem, right? I mean, that, that may be a problem with the index, and that may underlie a chronic situation where India is underranked, that is, it's ranked lower than it should be. But leaving aside that, the issue with the 2022 Global Hunger Index report was that in 2014, the previous UPA government in an election year seems to, and I say seems because I, I can't know the details without the ability to subpoena documents, you know, which I don't have, you know, seems to have reported a far rosier picture than reality because the numbers in the last benchmarking that Global Hunger Index did were based on numbers privately provided by government of India, not actual results from the National Family Survey. Okay, so the previous government provided rosy figures. Now, had the new government come in in 2014, reviewed this and, and realized that, or even when the 2015 National Family Survey came out, National Family Nutrition Survey, if they had then gone to the World Hunger Index and said, you know what, our previous government gave you incorrect data, we'd like to fix it. If that had been done, then instead of seeing a deterioration in India's situation between the last report and 2022, you would have seen an improvement in India's situation between the last report in 2022, and there would have been no controversy over it. There may have been a minor controversy that India's ranked so low when in reality India should be ranked higher, but the fall in India's ranking or the increase in Indian hunger that was recorded simply wouldn't have been there. There's a technical error. The government didn't fix it. Had the government come in in 2014 and immediately cleaned up house this wouldn't have happened. Now, they let the incorrect data sit there. They presumably didn't know it was there. No one ever thought about it. They didn't even seem to realize when the 2022 data came in, the government of India still didn't realize that the old data from 2014 were incorrect because they didn't demand that it be fixed. Uh, in the government's response to the Global Hunger Index report, it, it seems to have been unaware. Okay, It took me and forgive me, I, I'm just a guy with a computer, but someone who studies international indices, it, it, it took me about 20 minutes to realize that the number was wrong. And it took me about two hours to find out where the error had creeped in, crept in. Why didn't the government of India do that? Don't ask me. That's not my job. Uh, but this doesn't reflect a anti-Western bias on the part of the people, anti-India bias on the part of the people compiling the Global Hunger Index. It reflects either an error or a lie on the part of the UPA government in 2014. Um, don't blame the international uh, index compilers for that. Blame the government of India for that. How do you explain that India is doing so well in some of the indices like the innovation index or the yeah, yeah. ease of doing business index? Um, because they're based on different populations. So ease of doing business is mainly based on surveys of investors and CEOs who have a very different experience of India from university professors and human rights activists. Uh, the, uh, sorry, what was the other index you mentioned? The innovation index. Innovation. I, I'm not familiar with the innovation index. Again, if it's based on things like numbers of patents, numbers of graduates, which I expect an innovation index will be based on. Then India would Number be doing startups, fine. for instance. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's fine. I mean, you know, each of these indices are based on some kind of metrics. Now, you can say there are biases in the construction of what we think of as the appropriate metrics, right? Should should a certain metric be used to study democracy, or should a certain metric be used to study uh, uh, best practice? I mean, I'll give you a perfect example: the Varieties of Democracy Institute and its Participatory Democracy Index, which is one of its sub indexes. It's not the headline index. It includes a metric for universal social policy. The, the, the idea in Sweden is that it is more democratic, big air quotes, is more democratic for a country to have universal social policies, for example, universal health care, than have targeted social policies where only poor people 
get the benefit. Now, the reason they believe that, there's a lot of social theory around this. It's that uh, the idea is that a universal policy is likely to be supported by the whole population, whereas when you have targeted policies, it potentially leads to stigmatization and social, social exclusion. The idea that, well, if you are using this government-provided health care, you're somehow sponging on society and there's something wrong with you for not taking care of your own needs, right? So, so there's some theory behind it, but it's a very Western-centric, Euro, Euro-centric, not just Western-centric concept. In India, it, it would be a travesty if instead of having targeted social policies, so anti-poverty programs targeted at the poorest people, if that weren't done, it would be a travesty. India is a resource-constrained country. Absolutely, it should have targeted social policy, not universal social programs. But because of the mindset of the Swedish compilers of the um, of the VDEM democracy indices, they've introduced a bias that would lead to India having a lower ranking than it should have because they haven't adjusted for the context. Now, so there are minor issues like that that do result in biases in these indices, Western biases, and not even Western, often they are European and even worse than European, they are biases that feed to the preferences of academic political scientists. <laughs> they're, they're, they're things that political scientists like, and they incorporate right. it into the index because political can, scientists- You can call them dogmas? Like, you can call them dogmas. That's a entirely, you know, an entirely appropriate label for them. Um, but this is not the main issue, as I keep stressing, you know, because 2014 India did just fine in all these rankings, right? Uh, the democracy rankings, the social rankings. So while there may be minor biases that are, reflect a Western or a, a Western academic or a Eurocentric worldview, they're relatively minor. The, the, the big issue here, what caused India to fall 80 points in the rankings, you know, 80 notches in the rankings, yeah, that's you know Indian intellectuals reporting that their 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 negative appraisal of Mr. Modi becomes a negative appraisal of Indian democracy, with the implication that the only way a Narendra Modi could be elected is if India is not truly a democracy. You know, they refuse to believe that people would actually want this. And of course, ultimately, you get into theories of false consciousness that you know, well, if people are voting for Mr. Modi, it must be because they don't understand their own desires, their own needs, this kind of, you know, Marxist, Marxian claptrap that, uh, you know, I don't think non-Marxians take very seriously. Um, but whatever the reasons, it, it's very clear that the fall in the rankings has been due to Indian intellectuals' dislike for Mr. Modi. And my own paper is not even about that. I, my paper is about the mendacious evidence they've given, that, that the evidence they've given to support their negative rankings has been full of anachronistic information, outright misrepresentations, uh, you know, fabricated evidence. It, it's just almost entirely wrong. And that's why you say that uh, the uh, whole trope about uh, India being a fascist state is wrong. And you support it as uh, uh, one of the biggest success story of democracy. Look, I think that if India were a fascist state, I would have seen some evidence by now. <laughs> so to put it in to to put it in context, uh, I, I mean, India is ranked at roughly the same level as Myanmar on the VDM Varieties of Democracy Institute, elect, and specifically on their electoral democracy ranking, meaning that they believe that Indian elections are on a par with Myanmar elections. Now, Myanmar is run by a military junta. <laughs> there are no elections. There are no elections in Myanmar. Um, similarly, if you want to talk about the treatment of marginalized communities in India. So Muslims have been socially excluded in India to some extent. There are problems of Muslim social exclusion. That's why you know, Narendra Modi himself has given speeches advocating they, they, have, for, they have the high uh, they have the highest electoral participation of any community. But 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 there are look, if there weren't <laughs> that's, social that's exclusion. An objective fact. If there weren't social exclusion, Narendra Modi himself wouldn't be talking about the need to be more inclusive for Pashmanda Muslims. You know, he's used the term. Okay, there is some social exclusion of Muslims. In Myanmar, well, Pashmanda Muslims... is a different issue altogether. Let me explain it to you because I was the I, one who brought I, it to the fore. Narendra Modi is talking about it now. <laughs> I started talking about it. Two but look, years that, back. that's great. But, but look, it, it, there. it is because they're excluded by their own community. Whoever's, whoever's excluding them, there are problems of social exclusion of Indian Muslims. 
But compare that to Myanmar. I, I mean, in Myanmar, Myanmar Muslims have had their homes burned. Uh, you know, they're women raped. They've been expelled from the country and now live as refugees in poverty in Bangladesh. Now, again, to, to rank whatever level of social exclusion there is of Indian Muslims, to place it on a par with the experience of Myanmar Muslims is crazy. Right? There, there, there is no comparison between these two levels of social exclusion. Yet the rankings make exactly that comparison. Uh, so this is why I say the rankings are objectively false. Not, not just that I disagree with them, but we have lots of objective evidence. And, and these are just big picture issues. Again, if you, if you want to read the paper, you want me to get into the details um, on almost all, I can't, say, I can't say categorically all, on almost every point of evidence raised by the rankings in their um, textual write-up of the reasons given by their panelists to support the rankings, on almost every point, the point is false, misleading, misconstrued, anachronistic. There, there are serious flaws with almost every single point. All right. So, you know, that leads me to have very little confidence uh, in the veracity of the rankings. I believe in the reliability of the rankings, statistically speaking, but they are not true. <laughs> the problem is the veracity, not the reliability. Oh, that is because uh, I think uh, we also need to probably, I will do that exercise. Uh, we'll try and establish how many of these uh, people who have been sampled are basically Marxists and who have an interest in the breaking India up. You know, these Marxists, they still follow what is called, there is a, a Gangadhar Adhikari theory, which the Marxist, the CPI as it used to be before independence. They brought this paper to the 1942 Crips Commission that came to India to study how India could be mm -hmm. given uh, freedom or more power or dominion status or whatever. Right. And they said that India should be broken up into 17 countries. 17 countries. And till okay. today, these Marxists haven't disowned that theory. Uh, it is a travesty that they are still not labeled as anti-national and banned from political office. So look, I, I don't and know the political... Every, every time I face a Marxist, I ask him this question. Do you still do, do, do you disown the Gangadhar Adhikari theory? He never answers the question. Always okay. evades but, it or starts shouting about something else. They're very good yeah. at shouting. They never discuss and debate. They only shout, or shout the other person out. So my submission, I agree with you to that extent, is that uh, the uh, almost the bulk of these people who are being surveyed are basically Marxists or uh, should we call them um, quasi-Marxists? And but, uh, that yeah. is that that is uh, that is that is quite bad. And maybe we need to not convince them, but uh, because they have, they still follow the Gangadhar Adhikari theory. Anybody following Gangadhar Adhikari theory, which is invested in breaking India up, how can he be taken up as a legitimate credentialed person for the sample? In fact, I think we need first, to, first. now that we know this, just a minute, now that we know this, we probably need to inform them, it's the job of the government, of course, not us, that we need to inform that, that they have to have this basic fundamental built into their questionnaire when they choose the people who are they sampling, whether they believe in the Gangadhar Adhikari or the Breaking India theory or not. If they believe in that theory, then they are unfit to be sampled. Okay, first, I don't know the political party affiliations of the academics who are in these surveys. Second, oh, we, even we if they... Well, the ideological affiliations, well, not necessarily... Well, let's so say first, I, I just don't know. Because Second, even in the Western academia, we know that the Marxists have captured through postmodernism. Well, and well so no, no. Other, so Marxists... They have captured the American academia. Uh, no, 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 no. Look, look I, I want to be clear. Marxist social science is something very different from Marxist political parties. Okay, These aren't the same thing. Um, so first, I, I don't know their party affiliations. Second, even if you're right 
that they believe that India should be broken up into 17 separate countries. For me, as, a, as an objective Western social scientist, I'm not Indian. I don't have any passions about India. I, I'm just looking at this as a social scientist. For me, as an outside social scientist, there's nothing wrong with someone believing that India should be broken up into 17 countries. It may be profoundly wrong for you, but from a social scientific standpoint, maybe that's correct, right? I mean, I, I don't know prima facie that that's wrong so that I would have a litmus test. If you believe India should broken up, be broken up, you can't be surveyed for this, right? Maybe it's true objectively that India should be broken up into 17 countries. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying that I have no prima facie reason to say that it should exclude someone from a ranking if they believe that. Okay, third and most importantly, overwhelmingly, social scientists, political scientists and sociologists are either intellectually Marxian or Weberian. These are the two big traditions that have come to dominate social science. Neither tradition is fundamentally democratic. That is, both traditions are ultimately German, they're ultimately 19th century German, and they ultimately come out of views of the social sciences that don't embrace democratic decision-making. Uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised, that, and for me, that's the determinative issue, that social scientists who evaluate democracy are not coming from the perspective that democracy means one person, one vote, and the people get the government they vote for. And, and I'm shocked that political scientists as a group don't believe that, but when I read the political science literature, it is now considered a minority, old-fashioned, almost uh, you know, disreputable viewpoint to believe that democracy means one person, one vote, and the people get what they want. Okay, so it's it's not uh, it should be what is called a doctor democracy. Is is that the? Uh, it should be opinion? a what? Is that the ruling opinion that democracies should be doctor democracies? It should fit into the template of uh, these great social scientists. I, I don't know the term you're talking. A doctor democracy? I've never heard of a doctor democracy. What? Or, or am I mishearing you? I'm sorry. A, a doctor democracy is a democracy that is fashioned into exactly the template that the doctor ordered. Oh. <laughs> I've never heard the term used that way. Um, no, look, there, there's a lot of Platonism. Uh, people who follow Plato and who want to see a, uh, an expert-led, a philosopher kingdom uh, led yeah. by philosophers or a group of guardians. And, you know, it's become now the dominant view in political science that what democracy really means is having institutions that are insulated from the proper, from the popular will so that those institutions can operate for the popular good. And this idea goes all the way back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I mean, Rousseau wrote in The Social Contract that for him, yeah. democracy was not a vote. He said no vote could possibly tell you what the popular will was. Only the philosopher <laughs> could oh. tell you what the true popular will is. And if you believe that, well, you know, you may believe many things, but to my mind, you don't believe in democracy. I mean, for, I, I subscribe to a very traditional American view that democracy means when we dis disagree about something, we vote on it. <laughs> and whichever way the vote goes is the way we go. So, you know, when, when people, when, when academics no longer believe that democracy means one person, one vote, and the majority wins... Uh, well, then we have a problem for evaluating democracy everywhere. I mean, that's why the highest ranked democracies are Denmark, Norway, Sweden, New Zealand, instead of countries like the U.S., where despite all the failures of American democracy, I mean, the people vote for what they want and they get it. Quite right. <laughs> I think they could even rank China as the foremost democracy because even they claim to be a democracy. Oh, I have a colleague, uh, the professor of politics at the University of Sydney, who wrote a book about China being a quality democracy and then wrote a second book about how India was not a democracy because it did not follow the governance methods pioneered by China. Um, there are serious Western academics who are highly credentialed who take this viewpoint. And so I'm not surprised that there are also serious Indian academics who are highly credentialed who may take a similar view. There it is. I think we come come down to the uh, almost uh, uh, same opinion, a consensus uh, as it is. Uh, well, we should take I a vote. 
Unfortunately, any <laughs> vote we take will be one to one. <laughs> we can ask our viewers to vote. Yes, of course. Uh, the, the discussion sure. has been so fascinating. Uh, the viewers are also coming up with a lot of questions. So I will request the viewers to please uh, like this uh, video, also share it around, and to subscribe the channel if you haven't already, and also to support the channel. Now, one last question from me, and then we go to the audience questions. It's sure. already 45 minutes, and it's been so fascinating that I uh, forgot to keep track of time, actually. <laughs> you made a statement uh, that has been highly flagged. Uh, of course, that uh, statement has been appreciated by a majority of Indians. And you, says, you said that uh, the West is thoroughly anti-Indian. Oh, I never um, said the West was thoroughly anti-Indian. Institutional hatred is getting stronger by the hour. No, no, I, I never said the West is thoroughly anti-Indian, but there are um, strong anti-Indian forces in elite Western institutions, uh, you know, in places like uh, top universities, in places like think tanks, uh, in places like human rights NGOs. And that anti-India consensus is hardening in these elite institutions. I don't want to say the West is anti-India because business people aren't anti-India. Ordinary citizens are not anti-India. It's these leading establishment institutions that have turned anti-India. And to me, it's an extension of an age-old anti-Semitism that has hardened also, or there's an, there's an anti-Hinduism modeled on the anti-Semitism that's long been in these institutions. Of course, these institutions are all officially opposed to anti-Hinduism, anti-Semitism, anti-anything. But in reality, in many ways, the, the level of condemnation of Israel that we see among many of these peak institutions, which is now being mirrored by the, in the same institutions by condemnation of India, I find a, a shocking correlation. Now, it's only a correlation, uh, but it shares a lot of the same origins. So, so even among people who are no longer religious, there is historically a Christian, uh, a Christian disrespect and and even even loathing for uh, for for Jews that has been reflected in the horrific anti-Semitism, obviously of the Holocaust, but even going back further than that of the Middle Ages and you know, Western Christian societies have been. Uh, engage in anti-Semitism ever since the beginning of Christianity, right? Right. So this has been something going back almost 2,000 years. But the anti-Hinduism arose pretty much at the beginning of colonial contact. There was, uh, in many ways, a romanticization of Hindu uh, civilization, but at the same time, a an othering of Hindu civilization. That is that you know the idea of the Hindu as heathen. Uh, who needed to be civilized and without the light of Christianity, that heathen would always be somehow backward. I mean, that that revulsion towards Hinduism that is embedded in colonial institutions has survived the passing of the Christianity that originally fed it. Okay? So that today we still see a kind of, the, in the secular post-Christian West, there's still a disrespect for actual religious Hindus. And in a strange way, it's now become similar to the anti-Christianism of these secular institutions. That is, conservative Christians and conservative Hindus have a lot of the same enemies as anti-Semites, anti I'm sorry, as conservative Jews have always had for 2,000 years. That is, people who stigmatize uh, those of a of a culture and religion other than themselves. Now, the bizarre thing is that for certain cultures and religions, especially for Hinduism as a, and again, I'm using the term in its old-fashioned usage as a heathen religion, uh, or for Judaism with the, the blood libel, the historical blood libel of the Jews, uh, these two trends have been parallel they've survived the end of or they've survived the the transition from christian to post-christian society but they're contrasted to a kind of bizarre orientalization of islam uh that is 
there seems to be in many peak Western institutions an acceptance that Muslims are somehow by nature uh, inherently anti-democratic, hierarchical, violent. There's an acceptance that you know if you do something, if a Western institution were to be Islamophobic and do something that is um, disrespectful to Islam, it would somehow be justified for Muslims to lash out at that organization. Whereas if the same organization did something anti-Hindu or even anti-Christian, uh, it would just be par for the course. That, that is, so there's this, so this anti-Hinduism has been coupled with a bizarre romanticization of Islam. Now, I'm not a scholar of religion. This is not my area. As you can tell, I'm in slightly thinner ground here. I'm surmising. I'm reading the tea leaves of things that I observe out in the world. This is not something I've systematically studied. However, I found it very striking that literally the same people on campus who organize anti-Zionist rallies are now starting to organize anti-Hindutva rallies. The same people using the same techniques, often with the same slogans, and in combination with the same Muslim fundamentalist allies. Um, now, it's perfectly natural that a Palestinian activist would be anti-Israel. After all, I mean, Palestine has been at war with Israel for 70 years. Uh, it's perfectly natural that a Pakistani student organization would be anti-India. After all, Pakistan has been on and off at war with India for 75 years. Uh, the strange thing is the Western intellectuals allying with these groups. And that, so I, I, I want to be very clear. I don't mean to blame or stigmatize the Palestinians who are active on behalf of their own cause, Pal the uh, Pakistani students who are active on the behalf of their own cause. They're not anti-Semitic, necessarily anti-Semitic or anti-Hindu. They're just nationalists. But their allies are very strange bedfellows. And it's that that kind of raises my raises my suspicion. So I'm sorry for the very long answer. It's a long answer because at this point, it's something I've only begun to study. Uh, but hopefully we can get to better research on this over the next few years. Oh, well, uh, the long answer is very welcome because uh, I entirely agree with it. So absolutely. And now uh, I think time to go to the audience questions. Let's have audience questions.